Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine, and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. All right. It's your turn. What'd you pick? I picked the story, The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. All right. Why'd you pick it? Because every book of short stories I have on my shelf that I open, it's in. <laughs> you know? Every single one. Yep. <laughs> All right. And do you have a section for us? I do. The things they carried were largely determined by necessity. Among the necessities or near necessities were P-38 can openers, pocket knives, heat tabs, wristwatches, dog tags, mosquito repellent, chewing gum, candy, cigarettes, salt tablets, packets of Kool-Aid, lighters, matches, sewing kits, military payment certificates, sea rations, and two or three canteens of water. Together, these items weighed between 15 and 20 pounds, depending upon a man's habits or rate of metabolism. Henry Dobbins, who was a big man, carried extra rations. He was especially fond of canned peaches and heavy syrup over pound cake. Dave Jensen, who practiced field hygiene, carried a toothbrush, dental floss, and several hotel-sized bars of soap he'd stolen on R&R in Sydney, Australia. Ted Lavender, who was scared, carried tranquilizers until he was shot in the head outside the village of Tan Kay in mid-April. By necessity, and because it was SOP, they all carried steel helmets that weighed five pounds, including the liner and camouflage cover. They carried the standard fatigue jackets and trousers. Very few carried underwear. On their feet, they carried jungle boots, 2.1 pounds, and Dave Jensen carried three pairs of socks and a can of Dr. Scholl's foot powder as a precaution against trench foot. Until he was shot, Ted Lavender carried six or seven ounces of premium dope, which for him was a necessity. Mitchell Sanders, the RTO, carried condoms. Norman Bowker carried a diary. Rat Kiley carried comic books. Kiowa, a devout Baptist, carried an illustrated New Testament that had been presented to him by his father, who taught Sunday school in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. As a hedge against bad times, however, Kiowa also carried his grandmother's distrust of the white man, his grandfather's old hunting hatchet. Necessity dictated. Because the land was mined and booby-trapped, it was SOP for each man to carry a steel-centered, nylon-covered flak jacket, which weighed 6.7 pounds, but which on hot days seemed much heavier. Because he could die so quickly, each man carried at least one large compress bandage, usually in the helmet band for easy access. Because the nights were cold and because the monsoons were wet, each carried a green plastic poncho that could be used as a raincoat or ground sheet or makeshift tent. With its quilted liner, the poncho weighed almost two pounds, but it was worth every ounce. In April, for instance, when Ted Lavender was shot, they used his poncho to wrap him up, then to carry him across the paddy, then to lift him into the chopper that took him away. So obviously you said you picked this because it's one of the most popular short stories that's referenced. And believe it or not, despite that, John, I had never read it. And that is because I'm the least well-read person doing a fiction podcast (laughs) in the world. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Obviously I'm familiar with it. You'd heard of it before. I've heard of it a million times. Uh, The things they carried is just one of those titles, but I was always thinking to myself that I had to read the whole book, you know, because it's part of like a book of short stories. So I treated it like in my head as this novel that you know I, I wasn't going to get to ever <laughs> so when you sent it over I was like wait a second it's a part <laughs> of a collection which you know further proves my point that I am <laughs> the least well-read person ever I didn't even know like what it was part of 
Yeah, I'm learning all kinds of things, and I want to thank you for that. <laughs> but what do you like about it? Well, I like it. It's like a uh, really cool way to to tell a story. It's not just like you know, here's what happened. It's, right. It wraps it in this really interesting list kind of style of the things they carried. It's literally all the stuff they have. So I, I just like the the kind of the the conceit of it and the the way it's presented, and then it gets at this really like thorough kind of examination of the situation. Well, it kind of lays it out from the beginning, right? It's like like giving you that line that is used repeatedly. And even if you don't guess from the title after the first use of the phrase in the story that it's going to be repeated, when it, when it is ultimately repeated, you're reminded that this is the entire concept of the story, the things they carried. And so we're going to revisit it. It reminds me almost like uh, a couple of the other ones that we've read where we've talked about circling the same point over and over, but it's only through like that really deep examination of something that you get to the heart of it. You know, he couldn't have achieved the effect, in other words, in one of those sections. It had to have been done several times to get closer and closer and closer. Yeah. He goes over like two or three main events and they get kind of hinted at in the beginning and then described later and like revisited. The beginning of that story, Snow did that with when the uh, character fell on the scree and broke her leg. That incident came back with new details each time. And that's kind of, that's what's happening here is like all the details just get added on so you get this really, like I said, thorough examination of what's happened. Right. It's like revisiting, 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 covering the same ground, getting tighter, but also to your point, like being interspersed with these other events is what makes it key, like breaking it up and uh, the juxtaposition, right? Of Because the things that they carried in those paragraphs, they kind of start with the tangible items. It's the literal interpretation. And then obviously we start to get more and more metaphorical, right? So that we know by the end that the things they carry are not just about like the photo of Martha, but it's also about like the guilt that this main character carries as a result, right? Yeah. I marked the line. He carried a strobe light and the responsibility for the lives of his men. Yeah. This author was a soldier in Vietnam. (laughs) So he's writing about something that he actually experienced and can draw on whether or not he ever wrote to a girl named Martha. But this kind of jumps ahead to my takeaway. This is, you know, what we talk about when we say write what you know. And a list like the first one that you read could be mimicked by someone that studies Vietnam. But it can't be done in a literary way unless you've been there, I don't think. And that's because... You can list tangible things all day, but uh, you might not know what certain men actually carried, you know, like these letters and these photographs specifically. Obviously, like there's certain tools and things that they would need to have. But then, you know, there's like the random stuff that guys carry. Like it says Dave Jensen, who carried a toothbrush and dental floss. Right. So he's probably he's likely drawing on very specific characters with these unique quirks. And it's because he was there, you know, and he probably ran into guys like this who were staring life and death in the face, but really needed to floss. Yeah. He's making by uh, talking about those concrete items, he's making connections with, uh, he's connecting the items to each other by putting them in groups. He's connecting them with moments in the stories, connecting them with feelings that are being expressed in the the telling of the story. Right. There's like just a web of connections being made because there's so many items you can connect them in so many different ways. It really helps 
kind of circumscribe this, this situation. It paints a very vivid picture of what it's like to be in Vietnam, or it seems to, you know, I wasn't there, but all those details make it extremely vivid. You know, and if fiction is where details thrive, you know, fiction is about those details, then this is such a fantastic way to present a whole host of details that are going to paint your scene for you, paint your, your vivid imagery. And his okay. familiarity with it, like you were talking about, is going to help him make that as realistic and to reuse the word over and over again, vivid as possible. Yeah. It's like if his intention, when he set out to write this story in particular, was to talk about the tangible and intangible things that these men carried, then to your point, every detail he introduced is going to either make a connection just by virtue of being being included, or it's going to be something that he works really intentionally to make a connection for, you know? So like the flossing example, it's like that could be a one-off character, or you could really just think about those details and think to yourself, like, this is a guy that, like I said, looking life and death in the face, but he really wants to floss. Like that tells you a lot about that guy, you know, or a lot about like what's getting him by, or the fact that he's thinking about his teeth being these things that he has to take care of long-term when really he's got like gangrene or something. Yeah. It tells you a lot about all these people, but it's also, we talk about this all the time. It's also one of those stories where because it's a war setting, everything takes on a certain meaning, you know, a certain heightened meaning that we assign to it. So you introduce anything that's in a guy's pocket in wartime. And we think about it differently than if you introduced it in the pocket of a 12 year old walking home from school, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not saying that uh, Tim O'Brien is cheating, but uh, it's an advantage to write about war when you want to be literary. And he, he kind of makes the point. He's he's also telling how much things weigh. Yeah. If you talk about a grenade. Yes. There's a whole, you know, all kinds of baggage that come with the concept of a grenade. And then you say how much it weighs and how many somebody's carrying, you know, how much does that weigh them down? And yeah. Why do they carry a grenade? Well, like I can yeah. think about that. Yeah. That those because uh, it's life and death. Right. Everything has to be extraordinarily meaningful yes. if you're going to carry it in that situation. Whereas if you're just going to the movies, you know, it doesn't doesn't mean as much to carry something in your pocket to the movies. In a situation like this, you don't have to think very hard to understand what a literal burden it is to carry letters and photographs, even if they're just lightweight, you know, because they're delicate and you're constantly feeling for them and looking for them and prioritizing them and packing them in a certain way. I mean, even if they're light, like you're choosing to protect them and keep them and hold on to them. And so when he burns those things, he says, the character says, you know, they're so ingrained in my memory that burning them won't do anything. I've reread them and looked at these images a thousand times, right? But he does it as a gesture because his other burden is the guilt of not having protected his men. And so he knows to give his full attention to them, he needs to stop dealing with what's not useful to him right now. And what's not useful to him right now is that slut mark Martha. So <laughs> be gone, bitch. Yeah, it's, it's it's a story that's called The Things They Carried, and the story is about him unburdening, of him getting rid yes. of stuff. Yeah. That's the turning point. So the whole the way it's presented is like just keeps piling stuff onto these these characters, onto these soldiers. More and more stuff, more and more stuff. And like they're small things, they don't weigh a lot, but it's just this accumulation of things until the end when it's like, and then he decided he needed to get rid of something. Yeah. It's a great way to you set you set something up as like the uh the conceit the premise of the story yeah. and you you're not undermining it but you're following it to like this kind of cathartic conclusion sure 
a way to uh, find the emotion in it. Like, what does it mean to accumulate things or what does it mean to get rid of things? Yeah. It's like introducing the natural opposite of that action. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. That's a good formula almost. You might be able to describe it too, as just building up what's most important to a character just to thwart it. Yeah. That's a way to think about it because we talked about before that all these things gather meaning because of the situation they're in. And, um, dispensing of them also does something to that meaning right creates new meaning creates new import and uh, significance like i'm imagining now like a kid with something in his pocket on the playground if you wanted to do that same thing to that kid that tim o'brien did in this story it would be to really build up whatever special rock he has in his pocket all the things it's been through and why he holds on to it and the couple times he thought he lost it just to have him either like decide to give it up or have it taken away you know gives it to the little kid that's crying or something yeah Yeah. whatever he ultimately does with that rock is only important to the reader if you've successfully set up why it is going to be so difficult for him to do that yeah so it's like what are the stakes we talk about that a lot especially in our short story group like what are the stakes for this character the stakes can be whatever you want but unless we know them like we can't appreciate the outcome there's no emotional attachment to your plot unless i really truly understand what it's like for that character to give it up so you know had this story started with a soldier burning war photos you'd get a lot of context out of that and we would know that it was serious and sad right because it's war because it's a photo blah 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 we're filling in a lot of blanks with this premise but my point is that it wouldn't have that same emotional arc had you not spent all these pages talking about martha and who she is and why he's obsessed and why he shouldn't be obsessed and really really struggling with him and his brain so by the time he's actually burning the photos like we get it yeah well done. Good job, Tim O'Brien. <laughs> yeah, in case no one's told you, Tim, <laughs> you did a decent job with this one. I think you should continue writing. <laughs> you have a real knack for it, Tim. I guess one thing I'll mention is there's like one moment when it mostly is kind of this omniscient point of view where it's just like, here are the generalizations about the situation. This is what people carry. And then it dives in and says, this person carries this and this person carries that. But when it goes into someone's thoughts or feelings or um, mind internal reactions, it almost always goes into Lieutenant Cross, except for one time where he winds up after the guy gets shot, he's, he digs a, a hole, a little foxhole and sits in the bottom of it crying. He's just overcome. He's like, I can't believe that that happened. I was thinking about Martha and he got shot. And then it cuts to the, the conversation between the other guys and we get like their point of view on him and how they see the lieutenant like man he's really crying he loves us he's looking out for us right and i i thought that was such a um someone's gonna come along and tell you maintain your point of view don't change your point of view because that's the rule i read somewhere on the internet but it's fine it works tim o'brien doesn't care about that kind of advice he's strong enough writer but this is a good example of why sometimes it's you need to do that sometimes it's, it's important to change the points of view and um, let us see things from a slightly different perspective so i wanted to point that out as a moment in this story yeah my only thought on moments when that happens and it works when it comes up in a workshop it's usually one of these things where we try to figure out if it's okay <laughs> 
Yeah, that's true. We're always struggling to figure out if we should tell the writer that they messed up or that it doesn't work that way or that they broke a rule. And that's a lot of times that's a result of it being presented to a workshop, right? And then in a situation like this, it's it's published. And so you as the reader that you are, John, will notice it. But I think the average person might not notice it as this no. stark, abrupt shift. My point being in all of it, though, is that I would never tell someone to intentionally head hop this way. No. As a once-off. But to that point, I don't think Tim O'Brien made a conscious decision to do it either necessarily. I think like it's one of these things where like a seasoned writer, an expert writer almost just slips into it in that moment, just decides. It's it's not even a decision. It's just this unconscious thing that happens. It's where the story takes you. Yeah. It's the closest that I've ever come at least to a character taking over, right? A certain writer, I think, can feel themselves just like write a sentence and it's just, it just naturally comes out. I think if your story brought you to a point where you're suddenly head hopping. I don't know. It could work. Other people, I think, make a decision. I'm going to head, I'm going to show you this, or they don't, they aren't expert enough to realize that they did it in the first place. You know, that's not an example of it being naturally done. (laughs) Um, You'd be hard pressed to convince that writer, perhaps. I think what you're describing is that when the the seasoned, the experienced writer wants to, to express something within the story and they're following the logic of the story, the story itself may suggest to them or like their understanding of how the story needs to or ought to progress from this point will suggest to them that they need to impart information onto the reader that might not be within the head of a character and they need to tell it from within the head of a different character. Sure. They might not think about it in those specific analytical terms, but they will sense it in some way and do it because that's where the story is taking them. I think that um, if the story allows, not allows, but if the story um, requires that or if the story is made better by doing that, don't automatically pull back from it because you've read some random internet advice or read it in a book or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't let these hard and fast rules like cramp your style. (laughs) (laughs) Or change the story that you want to tell. Yeah, because it really can. Do you have a takeaway that you would like to elaborate on? I know I hinted at mine. Yeah, my takeaway is based is not it's nothing concrete or specific. I could easily say, you know, this story is is told in a really um this story is not told in an ordinary, straightforward way, you know, like event, event, event. It's wrapped in this conceit. It's really this interesting idea. And, you know, kind of a naive takeaway would be, why don't you come up with a list of things that people carry? No, don't do that. But my takeaway is we can tell stories in really different ways. We don't have to always be strict about narrating. You can find other ways to get to a story to like circle an idea or figure out or um, portray a situation that isn't just describing a scene and a character moving in that scene and then moving to the next scene. So that's my take is just the walls aren't there. We have to the horizons to find ways of telling stories. Well, John, uh, my takeaway directly Uh, contradicts yours, which is I think you should come up with a story about a list of things that people carried because I think... Yeah, I'm embarrassed. When I was giving the example of the kid on the playground with stuff in his pocket, like, I think that's a story. And I think everyone has stuff in their pockets. And uh, I think you can absolutely start a story with that premise. And you could really, really do a well-drawn character. It doesn't have to be the things they carried. It's the thing he carried, you know, or the thing she carried. Yeah, I think that's, that's like a writing prompt. That's not necessarily... Okay, listen. That, my point, you can go somewhere with that. My, my point is that you could go somewhere with it, but also like, I don't know, go ahead and copy 
copy this guy. <laughs> like, who cares? He's obviously <laughs> onto something. So, like, don't call it the things they carried. Don't use that verbiage. Call it the things Jeremy carried. The things that Jeremy carried. Call it the things that Jeremy carried and intersperse it with flashbacks of his life or what's presently going on with his situation. I guarantee you it's been done before. Yeah. I guarantee you this story has been copied. Oh, absolutely. You know, like intentionally, like, you know, not copied. What do they call it? What do you call it when you like do your own spin on something? A cover? It's been covered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. When a band covers a song, I mean, like, inspired by. Yeah. This formula works. Like things that people have on them, things that are happening, things that people have on them, things that are happening. <laughs> Copy it. I don't care. <laughs> My takeaway is that when you examine what what is important to someone to have, and when you examine it from an expert point of view, right? I shouldn't write the story about what a mechanic has in his pocket, but I can write a story about, you know, what a 34-year-old millennial has in her pocket when she goes to the gym, you know? Like she's gotta have her earbuds because God forbid someone talks to her. She's gotta have her water because it's her security blanket. There's stories of that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's not one you necessarily want to read, but uh, it tells you so much about a character when you really think about it. And when you can think about it, if you have some kind of an expertise in a situation or a premise or a time in history or a profession. No, I don't think there's anything wrong with approaching it in that way. I, I didn't mean to say that that would be a bad thing to do. I think I just don't want, you know, if you write a story that's literally framed in exactly the same way as this story people are going to know people have read this story <laughs> they're going to be like that sounds from that's it's very familiar i think i know what you did there people have read it but people like me would read it and be like what a clever story <laughs> well not anymore now you've read this <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> the formula is ruined for me now. However, I stand firm. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Maybe it's just a prompt. Maybe that's my takeaway. But I also wanted to circle back to like the whole write what you know. This is an example. This is what we mean when we say write what you know. Yeah, this is definitely one of the main motivators of that advice. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider joining our Patreon. Your support helps us keep the show running. Find out more at patreon.com slash whyisthisgoodpodcast. And for industry news, writing tips, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter at napleswritersworkshop.com.